You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. To Healthcare Insight, I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. We've been talking about understanding the concept of healthcare consumerism and how it applies to large employers, self-insured employers, and ultimately to health insurance companies who would develop the products appropriate for including healthcare consumerism and rewards and incentives. The reason we're talking about healthcare consumerism is that it is the underlying concept for any kind of national health reform, any replacement of Obamacare, that there needs to be more than just plan design. Insurance needs to be a dynamic product. It's not a product that you select an open enrollment and it's there for the year. You know your deductible, you know your coinsurance, you know what's covered or what's not covered. You know what period of time it's you're going to be covered for. You know if there's an employer contribution. All that is great, but that's a static product. Health insurance needs to be dynamic. That means it needs to change during the year based upon the issues that you're willing to take on to improve your health, to follow your doctor's orders, to do the right things around your health and health care decision-making, to get more educated as a consumer, to have something that's more patient-centered, that is, it's focused on you as a patient, that you can do things to help stabilize your condition, to eliminate the problems and issues of chronic and persistent conditions as best you can. So there's a lot of things that can be done. And products can, in fact, create a reward and incentive system by using the number one building block of healthcare consumerism that I call personal care accounts. Now, personal care accounts have become the core of healthcare consumerism. Any plan design can have an HRA or an FSA personal spending account that's attached to uh, the plan. HSAs require a legally defined high deductible health plan. So HSAs are kind of in a separate category. They're one of the most powerful tools we have in the personal care account umbrella of options. HRAs are very flexible now that they can be attached to any plan design. HSAs are very powerful because they're real dollars that the consumer has in an account. And once they're put in there, the consumer controls it. But the restriction is that you have, a, have to have a legally defined high deductible health plan or an HSA eligible plan. The key to behavioral change under consumerism is the ability to reward and incentivize members for good behaviors. In particular, HRAs and HSA eligible plans can be used to motivate change with initial personal care account balances and subsequent incentive reward additions. That's a critical part, that subsequent incentive reward additions. For the first time in our history, for the last number of years, but it's now becoming prevalent and should become even more prevalent, that we actually have an ability to provide subsequent incentive rewards after the selection of the plan. Some of the numbers I'm going to talk about show the growth and the percentage of companies offering such plans. Surveys show that from different sources, and different populations, different sizes and regions of the company. And from year to year, things change. But clearly, larger employers are paving the way and demonstrating the value 
of personal care accounts of the various types we've mentioned, HRAs, HSAs, and FSAs. The information is shown to indicate the strong growth and acceptance of personal care accounts. There are a number of companies that do surveys, most of them annual, but the percentage of companies with health benefits offering account-based plans year by year has been increasing depending upon the type of market you're looking at, the type of survey that's being conducted. You'll find different results. Mercer, for example, is a consulting firm has two different segments, two silos in their surveys. One is 10 plus employees and the other is 500 plus employees. Well, in the 10 plus employees, the companies that have account balances are heavily skewed towards those smaller accounts. And you have somewhere between 25 and maybe 35% of employers that actually have an account-based plan. So probably less than a third in any study that might be done in recent times. But the Mercer study looks at the 500 lives and above, 500 employees, the number is more like 75%. Now, there's different studies as well. I'll mention another one that's common every year, and that's the Kaiser study, Kaiser Foundation study. And there it's been growing each year, and it's currently somewhere maybe over 30%. But the Kaiser includes all sizes and the number of companies by size is dramatically skewed towards the smaller companies. So therefore, the percentages of all companies is very low. So you can see the numbers can change, but that the message of these studies is that the larger employers have been implementing healthcare consumerism. Now, HSAs are more popular with employer-based plans than our HRAs. And quite honestly, that always surprises me. They've really taken off with the HSAs. I thought HSAs, as they are originally conceived, were mainly for small employers, that they'd put real dollars into an account. Whereas HRAs are what are called notional accounts. It's a promise by employer to pay for certain health care expenses and to pay for some premiums, but only the employer can contribute money into it. Well, it turned out the opposite of what I originally thought when these bills were, were first um, conceived and passed in the law with the HSAs being passed by law, HRAs being put in by regulation. But the reality is that HSAs have become very important and very popular with employer-based plans. Employees like it because they're real dollars. Once those dollars by an employer are put into an account, it is the employee's dollars at that point. And the beauty is that employees can also use it as tax-free savings and then withdrawals on a tax-free basis. So it's a very powerful tool. And in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense that HSAs have become this popular. In terms of the percentage of companies with health benefits offering either one, it looks like, for example, with fewer than 1,000 employees, HSAs, are popular with over 50%, whereas HRAs are popular with between 15 and 20%. For employees between 1,000 and 5,000 employees, the HSA eligible plans are popular with over 70% of companies in that size. And HRAs 
are actually popular with, again, the 15 to 20%. So HSAs are really the dominant type of personal care account. And it's still very popular, again, through the studies that we've seen with the larger employers rather than the smaller employers. In terms of region of the country, the companies that are offering account-based plans of, of any type, it looks like the Southeast and the Northeast are very popular. In other words, it's the East Coast. On the West Coast, they're not quite as popular. And so the movement is, I guess, towards a lot of larger employers are, are located in the East, in New York, Washington. Um, North Central is not too far behind, the Chicago and um, Central time zone, if you will. Um, they're, they're lagging behind the, the, the North and the South on the East Coast, but not that far behind and are catching up. It's the Central and very much the West Coast where account-based plans are not as popular. And I think that probably comes from on the West Coast, um, Kaiser HMOs are still very popular. Uh, they've done a great job with the Kaiser Permanente uh, healthcare delivery system. And that model has not been portable to other parts of the country. Yes, other parts of the country have Kaiser plans, but they really have not been as effective, as efficient, as well accepted. And on the West Coast, they're pretty well ingrained in the in the population out there. So you have, you know, it bounces around quite a bit depending upon the year of the survey and who's being surveyed and who responds. But when the other parts of the country are 35 to 40 percent and growing, the West Coast is still around 15 uh, to 20 percent. So much less in terms of the acceptance of account-based plans on the West Coast. Now, in terms of the growth of the HSA accounts, the actual dollar accounts, um, they're really accumulating very rapidly in billions of dollars. Uh, total account balances have been rising very rapidly and are approaching uh, or better than $50 billion in, uh, in total accounts. So once the plan design, the framework is selected by an employee, the type, structure, flexibility, and use of personal care accounts can be matched with the benefit strategy, each type of account, FSA, HRA, or HSA, as I've mentioned, have different rules and legal requirements. Employers will need to consider the multiple plan design options and effectively integrate selected personal care accounts with the complexity of advanced healthcare consumerism strategies using limited use accounts, deposit amounts, reward incentives, investment options, withdrawal rules, and penalties. All that sounds a little complicated, but it's really not. It's just the rules that will be set up by the HR department on how these accounts uh, will be used and accumulate, what kind of interest rate, uh, if they're holding any of the funds, or how much they're going to put in, or what the rewards or incentives are going to be. So a lot of choices can be made on, on these accounts. And there are very important differences in the HRA and the HSA and their use in multi-generational strategy. HSAs are very desirable because both plan members and employers and even third parties can contribute with the triple tax advantages. Because there's no required plan design, HRAs may offer the best solution for a creative and flexible shared savings plan design. But again, there's limitations, no employee contributions can be put into an HRA. The best of all worlds would be a combination account with the flexibility of HRAs and the portability of fully invested 
HSAs. Maybe one day we'll get legislation that will actually support that kind of a new account, which would be maybe a universal uh, savings account for healthcare that would include the flexibility of HRAs and the fully vested nature of HSAs. So there are a number of differences, and we've described a lot of that in the past. And the way you would use these in different generations could be very different. But certainly starting with Generation 2, it's this idea of activity compliance rewards that would go into an account, that you would be doing things, whether it's stopping smoking or whether it's exercise, whether it's following a doctor's orders, whether it's meeting uh, body mass index and other um, uh, health metrics, uh, creating a health status that's the employer is saying, if you do these things, I'll give you a reward and incentive. Those are all things that would be done in second generation. In the third generation, that's more about how the employer affects you and you affect the employer in terms of your health. There, there can be various ways with health reimbursement arrangements that individual rewards or even group rewards. And then as we move into fourth and fifth generation, it gets even more interesting on how we can set up some of these accounts and what they can be used for. On the fifth generation, skipping over that for a second, um, we're moving from financial rewards to more intrinsic rewards. Uh, the paying forward. So it could really be volunteer accounts, more like uh, frequent flyer points that you can pass on to somebody else. You can share with other people uh, in your family or in your community or pass them forward uh, to other people to use that are really in need. So there's all sorts of options and issues that can be developed using um, uh, these account-based plans. They're really the heart and the soul of what um, consumerism is really all about. So, Let's take a quick break and let's come back and we'll talk about some of the other basic core building blocks of healthcare consumerism. Be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio. We've been talking in this hour about personal care accounts. Now, we described those in previous sessions, but let me go back through and talk about them specifically and what the differences are and how they're utilized. Let's start with flexible spending accounts. The first tax advantage personal care account was the FSA. It was established in 1979 under Section 125 of the IRS Code. Monies put into an FSA by either an employer or an employee are excludable from income and must be used for qualified medical expenses and operate under an annual use-it-or-lose-it requirement. This use-it-or-lose-it feature requires that employees project the amount of money they will spend and will not otherwise be reimbursed by their health plans with deductible coinsurance and non-medical expenses. That has been changed and made more flexible, and there's more carryover and there's more discussion about new laws being passed in the next health care reform package that would do an even better job of creating some carryover and flexibility for FSAs. Now, I know some of this is going to get into the weeds a little bit, but hang with me. I'm going to try to keep it real simple. And for those of you listening, I think you might find it interesting that there are different accounts with different ways to be used. And you ought to be asking your insurance agent, your HR department, the insurance company, uh, ask people who are involved with the management and the administration of your health care plan around what are the differences if you 
lose track of this. The important part here, I think, is to understand a little bit, or at least begin to understand what the differences are and how you may be able to, be, be able to benefit from them. Because it's your insurance, it's your plan, it's your finances. You need to know and get familiar with the different concepts. So FSAs, if they're allowed by your company, because not every company even uh, provides the option for flexible spending arrangements. But they are attractive tax advantage counts for employees who anticipate and project either significant or predetermined medical expenses in a given year. You know something is going to come up. So rather than have a deductible, which is out-of-pocket expenses, after-tax, if you will, expenses, you can put monies into an FSA, and when that expense occurs, you can take it out tax-free. And you get the tax deduction at the front end for putting it in. So it's tax-advantage dollars. The FSA contribution is set and fixed at the beginning of the year. The major disadvantage is that only a portion of the unused funds can be carried over from one plan year to the next. The inability to carry over all unused funds causes economic distortions as members tend to increase utilization on any unnecessary and unneeded supplies and services as the year draws to a close with that carryover period that allows for some money draws to a close and you still have more money than you're allowed to carry over. You'll spend those dollars on all sorts of things that you may not really need. So it's kind of a waste. So you really need to target what it is you're going to be spending it on and know pretty much in advance that you're going to be spending a certain amount of dollars uh, on health care during the year. And then you can use your FSA. Now, health reimbursement arrangements, they allow for carryover unused amounts. Typically, most employers allow for the carryover the full amount of HREs, but it is flexible, so you need to check and be sure that your employer is allowing the full carryover of HRAs. That is the, the normal situation. Probably 95-plus percent of employers allow the full carryover of HRAs. In 2002, the IRS guideline confirmed that as long as HRAs meet certain requirements, they can be offered in connection with nearly any type of employer health plan to pay for medical expenses on a tax-free basis. So the employer who put money in, it's a tax deductible for them, it's tax-free income for you, and when you pull it out to use it, it's not taxed uh, on your income taxes. One of the key options of healthcare consumerism is using the flexibility of HRAs, allowing them to be used in several ways to achieve employers' benefit and behavioral change objectives. Remember, that's the whole reason for these different accounts, is to change behaviors, to get people more involved, more knowledgeable. So if you just kind of shun this thing off to the side and say, yeah, 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 I'm not going to worry about these accounts, you're really missing the opportunity to have a better financial product. So instead of thinking about insurance as a year-to-year kind of use it or I'm not going to use it, that's really an asset that's going to accumulate over time. So first, HRAs can be used to pay for planned deductibles, co-insurance, and co-pays. That is, HRAs can be used to pay for plan-defined covered expenses otherwise paid by the employee with after-tax dollars. So it's to your great benefit to use HRAs to pay on a pre-tax basis rather than after you've paid taxes, you only have uh, you have fewer dollars left to pay for your health care expenses. Why not pay with it with pre-tax dollars? The processing and recognition of HRA payments would go through the normal plan payment adjudication. So in other words, you, you have certain claims, you submit them, 
and your plan decides, yes, that's a legitimate health care expense, and you have an HRA account, and it gets processed just like any other uh, claim would be. Second, employers can establish whether or not HRAs can be used for non-plan covered expenses that the IRS recognizes as qualified medical expenses. So a little bit in the weeds here. Your plan may not cover everything, but the IRS says, no, that's a, that's a legitimate medical expense. And as long as we're in the weeds, let me identify for those listening. Uh, the qualified medical expenses by the IRS is in the IRS section 213D of the code. So it's usually referred by an HR department as a qualified medical expense under section 213D. The processing of these payments can be provided by several entities, an insurance carrier, a third-party administrator, or a TPA, Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, and specialty processors. Traditionally, there has been a requirement for paper handling, review, and certification of submitted expenses as meeting the, the standards of the IRS. The IRS has approved the use of electronic processing of claims with certain safeguards to assure they are qualified medical expenses. This IRS approval of electronic processing allows for cost-effective sort of debit and credit cards to use to draw on FSAs, HRAs, and even HSAs. A third way, if established by the employer of using HRA funds, is to pay for health insurance premiums. It's one of the unique advantages of HRAs, you can pay for health insurance premiums. For example, HRAs can be used to pay for COBRA, retiree medical, long-term care, and other medical insurance plans. The IRS guidelines give the employer the full power of structuring the employee use, access, and applicability of HRA funds. Multiple uses can be phased in over a period of years. For example, an employer may initially restrict HRA funds to deductibles and other cost-sharing features of the medical plan itself. As people get used to using HRA funds, in subsequent years, or for amounts in excess of some dollar amount, an employer may allow extended use of HRAs for non-plan qualified medical expenses. Introduction of healthcare consumerism should consider a pre-planned and announced multi-year strategy. So, HRA is very flexible, can be attached to any plan. You ought to be looking at the details. Ask your employer if you have an HRA and then how you can best use those funds. So you need to learn about this stuff. It's not just words that are thrown out there. Okay, insurance is complicated. I can't understand it. I'm not going to listen to it. No, you. if you had a, an investment account, if you were buying stocks and bonds, you would learn what stock you have, what the price is, if it's going up or down, when you should buy, when you should sell more. You really need to get a little bit more sophistication around healthcare and begin to understand the concepts of how you can better use and accumulate the asset that's within your health care plan. In 2002, the IRS guidance clarified that appropriately structured HRAs are not subject to the following restrictions otherwise applicable to HSFSAs. These restrictions might be listed this way. One, the prohibition against a benefit that defers compensation by permitting employees to carry over Unused elective contributions or plan benefits from one year, uh, plan year to another. In other words, you can accumulate HRAs where you have limited ability on FSAs. 
there are some other restrictions, but I'm going to skip over some of the others in terms of that there are flexibilities that HRAs have that FSAs do not. Now, let's talk about the HRA-only plans. Now, a lot of employers don't want to put in, especially small employers, don't want to put in a health care plan because of the growing cost of health care from year to year. Only after they become financially sound and or they're really interested in trying to bring employees over from another company in order to build their business. Most employers in larger companies will have health insurance, and it's pretty tough to go from having health insurance to a smaller company that may have more upside potential for career development, for uh, stock options, for management, but you don't want to go to a company that doesn't have health insurance in any way, shape, or form or support it. So small employers have the option for an HRA only, and it's kind of come and gone. So let me give you a little bit more background there. HRAs are technically insurance plans. While they are counts, in some sense, they are health reimbursement arrangements. They are not health reimbursement accounts. And they use that term arrangements in the name because technically they are really insurance plans under the federal laws. Pre-Obamacare, standalone HRAs were allowed and used, especially by small employers. As I said, they'll at least provide some funding. The employer put up some money and the employees can go out and buy insurance for those dollars. An ACA ruling then prohibited standalone HRAs. They did not meet the Obamacare requirements for insurance plans. Since they were dollar amounts, they did not have unlimited lifetime maximums. It did not really cover essential benefits. It was just an amount of money that the employer promised to pay. However, on December 13, 2016, under the Trump administration, the Cures Act was signed into law and reinstated the standalone HRAs effective January 1, 2017 for groups of fewer than 50 employees. Employers can use the standalone HRA to fund health expenses and provide support for the purchase of individual policies. This allows small employers to return to a defined contribution that can fix their cost to a specific dollar subsidy. So this is a great benefit for small employers. So if your employer does not have health insurance today, you ought to be out there asking, will you, you at least contribute something that I can go buy on a tax advantage basis? Health insurance, an individual plan. You can set up an HRA only and allocate 150, 250, whatever, some fixed dollar amount and say, just do that. And you're not going to be tied into forever health insurance until you get financially strong enough as a startup business or a relatively new small business to be able to offer a pure health insurance plan. So let's see what we can do in terms of an HRA only. Well, we've described this personal care account in some detail, and there's a little bit more to go. Again, I know it's a little bit complicated, but hang with me. This is really important stuff for those of you out there who have a health insurance plan with a personal care account of one of these three three types of plans. You need to know how to best utilize those plans and accumulate as many dollars so when you need them and when you're sick, you'll actually have those plans available to you. So let's take a quick commercial, and we'll be right back and talk about personal care accounts a little bit more in this hour. Want to give your family, our loved one, the perfect gift? 
then go online and check out the tornadobodydryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it, and you'll love having one in your shop. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. Welcome back to, to Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio. We've been talking about personal care accounts, and there are three in particular that we've been talking about that are available today for most employers to implement, for insurance companies to uh, include with their plans, and for employees to really know and understand. And they all come by that alphabet letter business that's typically part of insurance plans. The first is the flexible spending arrangements, and we've talked about those. Those are the ones that have been around the longest since the late 1970s. Health reimbursement arrangements, or HRAs, and those have been around since 2002, 2003, time frame when they really started to uh, kick into the marketplace and new products. And health savings accounts, or HSAs. So HSAs are accounts that were actually became effective January 1st, 2004. So we have these three different types of accounts, and we're going through and describing and explaining them in some detail. But the reason for that is not to be complicated or say, okay, here's how smart you need to be to understand all this or to take some some PhD in, uh, in account-based plans. No, It's really about being sure that every employee out there knows that these are accounts, they are tax advantaged, it's to your benefit, and you can change your health insurance from a year-to-year benefit that you uh, have from your employer or that you go out and buy. And you change it from an annual product into a multi-year accumulation of assets. And it's those personal care accounts that are the vehicle for the accumulation of assets. And it's those personal care accounts that can be added to and accumulate over time. In particular, with the HRAs and the HSAs, there's a great opportunity for an employer to reward and incentivize people by adding to those accounts after any initial amount that's put into the the account. So the question for many people has come to me before about, okay, you've got these three different accounts. what, What can you do? Can you use multiple accounts? Can you only have one account? How does all this work? And if you have multiple accounts, is there a certain order in which you have to draw the funds first or design a plan so that um, they all kind of fit together? How does this really work since there are some separate rules and regulations around them? Well, let's talk about two types of accounts, HRAs, the health reimbursement arrangement, and FSAs, the flexible spending account. What happens if you try to put both of those into the same plan? If your employer is putting those in, now remember this is going to be an employer plan because HRAs can only be added to, can only be promised by an employer. An employee or a plan member cannot put money into an HRA. You can only put money into an FSA again. 
So generally, under rules governing the FSAs, a medical expense may not be reimbursed from a medical FSA if the expense is reimbursable under any part of the medical plan or by any other health plan. Notice you can't just use FSAs whenever you want. Under normal IRS rules, if coverage is provided under both an HRA and an FSA for the same medical expense, in other words, you have both accounts sitting there and you've got a medical expense, which, which one do you draw the money out of? The HRA amounts must be exhausted before reimbursements are permitted under an FSA. In other words, if your plan doesn't specifically state otherwise, your dollar is going to come out of your HRA first. But that's not particularly good because you set up your FSA for a specific expense that you're going to have during the year. But if you haven't had any other expenses that would use up your HRA, um, you were planning on using your FSA. But the law says, no, you can't. You're going to have to take it out of your HRA. And then your FSA dollars are left that have that limited carryover at the end of the year. Now, there's a solution to that. However, in 2002 IRS ruling, they allowed a reversal of the order, which is what you really want. So a violation does not occur if the medical plan has contract language that is properly written. A plan with a combination of accounts cannot allow for deductible reimbursements. Knows you can't take it out of both accounts for the same expense. And typically, your benefit manager, your your HRE department is going to structure it so your FSA will be utilized first and your HRE later. So that's the best way to do it. So keep in mind that if your plan has both, there are some issues that you want to be sure that the dollars you set up on an FSA are not utilized um, second, but they're utilized first. Now, what about health savings accounts, HSAs? They were effective January 1st, 2004. Under federal legislation, it created the HSAs. HSAs can be funded by employers or employees, and they are portable. That's the real value of HSAs. They are tax-free income to employees, and they accumulate tax-free, and they are not taxed when withdrawn for eligible medical expenses, what's called triple tax advantage. Contributions to an HSA are deductible in determining your adjusted gross income. So whatever your employer puts in there, um, it's not going to be taxed. Employer contributions to an HSA, including salary reduction contributions and cafeteria plans. Don't worry about the term about cafeteria plans. Just that your employer contributions are excludable from gross income and wages for employment tax purposes to the extent the contribution would be deductible if made by the employee. So either case, the employer or the employee, you can take what's called a salary reduction where you lower your your taxable income and your employer would actually take that money and put it into an account on your behalf. So that's allowed as well as the employer just directly contributing money into your uh, HSA. For policyholders and covered spouses, Age 55 and older, there's an additional catch-up contribution of about $1,000 per year. They're allowed and specified in the law so the HSA annual contribution limit is greater than otherwise applicable. So in other words, if you didn't get into an HSA until you were older, you didn't have those previous years to actually put money away and accumulate uh, these HSA dollars. Well, if you're 55 or older, you can actually do this little catch-up provision that allows you to put more money into it because... Just because of your age and it's the first time uh, that you're able to do that. 
or you're, if you're 55 and older and you've had the plan for a while, doesn't have to be the first year you've ever had it. Once you reach 55, you're allowed to put these extra dollars in. So generally, an HSA-eligible plan cannot provide benefits before the deductible is satisfied. So you can't use HSAs early on in your plan. But there is an exception for preventive care benefits. So it's preventive care. And preventive care is a broad definition. It's not just the things that are in Obamacare that are defined as preventive care. Uh, there are some guidelines that allow for various things like uh, medications that um, – uh, might not be considered preventive care, but are defined now for HSA purposes as being allowed to be reimbursed. Um, originally, the IRS guidance provided a safe harbor list of preventive benefits. With the passage of the ACA, the definitions of preventive care benefits were made consistent with the 100% mandated preventive care benefits in, uh, in the Obamacare. So generally, these include physical exams, immunizations, and screening services, as well as routine prenatal and well child care, tobacco cessation programs, and obesity weight loss programs. Preventive care generally does not include treatment of pre-existing conditions. The IRS also made it clear preventive drug benefits cannot be provided before the deductible of the HSA-eligible plan has been satisfied. But, again... The HSAs have been so popular, the IRS has created greater flexibility to define what prescription drugs are allowed and what are not. Just give you a quick example. Um, uh, Lipitor for cholesterol. Well, is that a, um, a preventive care? It's preventing you from having a heart attack if you take it. Or is it a benefit that you need to have to cure something you already have, which is high cholesterol? Well, in that kind of a situation, the IRS has said, no, 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 you can use your HSA to pay for that Lipitor. And that has expanded over time. And again, you need to look at the regulations, talk to your benefit manager to find out exactly uh, what types of, of uh, benefits that may not be covered under your plan can be covered by an HSA. It's a little bit complicated. And I know, again, that we're in the weeds a little bit, but you know these are issues that are important for your particular company, your particular plan, and even your, your particular insurance carrier or your third-party administrator, uh, they may recognize uh, different types of programs that are covered uh, by um, your HSAs that would not otherwise be recognized. So there's a lot of flexibility here, but HSAs are very popular, and you really need to be able to cover most any expense that you logically think would be uh, needed uh, that would not otherwise be uh, critical to a condition you already have, a heart attack or uh, congestive heart failure, uh, COPD, uh, other expenses that uh, is clearly not preventive care. Uh, but the area is a little uncertain, so the rules are changing all the time. So let's talk about one more item here on, on the uh, personal care accounts, and that is qualified medical expenses. What in the world are they? Um and you also find some words if you're in if you're a benefit manager in here, and this may be a little section more important for them. Things like substantiation. The IRS requires third-party substantiation of HRA and FSA reimbursements as legitimate qualified medical expenses under that section 213D that we mentioned earlier. Substantiation means here that you have to actually submit those claims and have them reviewed and by claims processes. So these are real healthcare claims. 
The IRS guidelines released in December 2003 do not require third-party substantiation for HSAs. In other words, if you have an expense as an employee, you make that determination as to whether or not you can use your HSA funds for some expense, whether it's an over-the-counter drug or a prescription drug or whatever. How are you going to use your HSA and are you using it appropriately? There's no third-party substantiation for that. However, if a member wants to have the HSA reimbursement count towards the high-deductible health plan deductible, claims must be submitted to the plan for proper um, claim payment. Adjudication is the term that's usually used there. So generally, HSAs, FSAs, and HRAs can be used to reimburse qualified medical expenses. And in 2003, the expanded definition of qualified medical expenses to include certain over-the-counter drugs and later HSA ruled over-the-counter drugs would need to be certified by a physician to qualify for reimbursement. So it gets a little bit murky. Again, very simply, recognize that you need to go to your HR department, look at some of your materials put out by the insurance companies and ask the questions because these are your dollars. And just as you would ask a stock um, manager you know, how do you do this or how do you do that? They'll help you walk through there, but know that you have some flexibility here in how you use these dollars. So for plan members with claims less than the high deductible health plan deductible level in a given year, the differences in substantiation rules is a significant simplification simplification for HSAs over FSAs and HRAs. I think that's one of the main reasons why HSAs are so popular. Congress intended HSAs to follow many of the general guidelines set for something that was started in the 1990s called medical savings accounts. And non-substantiation opened the door for banks and other institutions to act as HSA trustees and offer HSAs directly to the public. What that means is if your employer doesn't offer an HSA but you have an HSA-eligible plan, you can go down to your corner bank and open up an HSA account. And you can put money into there. If your employer is not contributing, doesn't have it set up, you can still go out and do that yourself. So find out if your plan is HSA eligible because you have the ability to go out and put some of your hard-earned tax money into a tax-free account where you'd have that as a deduction off of your income. It would accumulate tax-free, and when you used it, it would come out tax-free. It is a great advantage. Well, we've come to the end of another section. Let's... Take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll wrap up this hour of really an in-depth analysis of personal care accounts. I hope you're following me a little bit. If nothing else, know that there are a lot of opportunities for you to accumulate money other than putting in the stock market, and you have a guaranteed tax-free benefit that accumulates tax-free. Be back in a minute. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. 
More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight. We are going over the details of personal care accounts, the three major accounts, health reimbursement arrangements, health savings accounts, and flexible spending arrangements. Now, the real important part of all this discussion is not to show you all the complexities, but the real issue here is this is your money. Everybody out there wants to save money. Everybody out there ought to be wanting to use tax-free money. Everybody out there who's listening really ought to want their employer to establish accounts where you're not just paying a premium, and then you may or may not use that plan according to whether you're sick or not that year, but that you're able to, if you're healthy in particular, to be able to accumulate dollars that will help you for times when you are sick. If you have an illness, you ought to have an ability for your employer to recognize that if you're compliant with your doctor's orders, or if you're doing the right things to keep from being hospitalized, you're changing your lifestyle, your diet, or you're doing more exercise that keeps you healthy and doesn't create more expenses, healthcare expenses for your employer, that you ought to be able to get some reward and incentive to, for doing that. If the employer is going to save money by your good behavioral change. You ought to share in some of that savings. That's what personal accounts is all about. It's not all this complexity that I've been going through and trying to share with you how you might be able to utilize these plans to your benefit. But the whole idea is it's your money, and you need to optimize the dollars, the accumulation for when you or your family member really need it. You know, too many people are filing for bankruptcy because they can't even cover the deductible of a plan, the cost-sharing of a plan, let alone that they're uninsured and can't uh, cover any expenses. So this is really important to your financial health, your personal well-being in general. So let's talk about the specialty use of personal care accounts and how this might be structured. So if as particularly this this last 15 minutes here may be more for the um, a benefit manager or people who are really into um, uh, the healthcare plan designs, maybe consultants out there. But even as a plan member or a consumer, uh, these are things that could be done, and you might be able to encourage your employer or find an insurance product that uses what I'll call specialty care accounts. So I'm going to get a little bit into the weeds again for this last section, but I promise you this is the last part of the personal care accounts. So they can be complicated but valuable for an organization to consider various combinations and uses of personal care accounts. I'm going to describe some approaches that are legal but are rarely used in specially planned designs. These are things that may very well develop. So these are things that employers can do today. They're, they're legal but are not always used. The first is a combination of the HRAs and FSAs. We mentioned that earlier about the ordering of claims needs to be done right so that your FSA is used first because that has the, the carryover limitations as opposed to the HRAs, which is unlimited carryover. So limited purpose HRAs and FSAs. What happens there is that the limited purpose health FSA pays or reimburses benefits for permitted coverages, but not for insurance or for long-term care. So that's a restriction on FSAs. A limited-purpose HRA pays for reimbursements of benefits 
for permitted insurance, that is, for a specific disease or illness policy or a plan that provides for a fixed amount per day or period for hospitalization or other permitted coverages, but not for long-term care services. So you can do that with HRAs. In addition, a limited-purpose health FSA or HRA may pay or reimburse for preventive care benefits. So basically what we're saying here is that an employer can set up these accounts so that they will pay for limited purposes, for very specific items of health or health care that the employer wants to structure these around. So the ability to use these funds has a great deal of impact on what the employer wants the employee to do and how they want them to use it. Um, it puts restrictions because it's limited purpose, and so they're not real common because employees and employers are fine with letting employees pay for most everything, but it's still a possibility for some employers who want to do that. In combining HSAs and HRAs, this is probably a more common question that people have asked about. How do I combine health savings accounts with HRAs? Well, you can do that, but it has to be with something that's referred to as a suspended HRA. A suspended HRA does not pay or reimburse for any medical expense incurred during the suspension period except preventive care, permitted insurance, and permitted coverage if otherwise allowed to be paid or reimbursed by the HRA. So in other words, the suspension period ends when the individual is again entitled to receive payment or reimbursement of medical expenses from an HRA. Those, if you have an HSA, you have to use those first. You can't have HRA dollars until maybe the coinsurance area is a good example. You use HSAs for the deductible and HRAs for the coinsurance. Remembering that HRAs can only be set up uh, from the employer side. You cannot add money as an employee to an HRA. That's strictly an employer saying, I am going to put these monies on the table, and if and when you need them, you can draw up to this amount. If you don't draw it up, you can carry it over. So that's the way HRAs work with an HSA, but an HSA is the dominant coverage. It's the most important one. It pays up front and covers your deductible with certain limitations. And then you can suspend the use of HRAs until you get through your HSA and you're into uh, the regular plan that might have a coinsurance involved with it. So now you can also have, as I'm just describing here, an HSA with a post-deductible health FSA or HRA. A post-deductible FSA or HRA does not pay or reimburse any medical expense incurred before the minimum annual deductible is satisfied. The individual would then be an eligible individual for the purposes of making contributions to an HSA. The deductible for the HRA or health FSA need not be the same as the deductible for the uh, high-deductible health plan, but in no event may the high-deductible health plan or other coverage provide benefits before the minimum annual deductible is satisfied. So again, you can have an HRA or an FSA after your deductible, but most people don't want the FSA after your deductible. It's really the combination of the HSA and the HRA. We use your HSA during the deductible period and the HRA after the deductible period. Now, one of the most valuable and recently heavily introduced HRA uses is for retirement. 
A retirement HRA pays or reimburses only those medical expenses incurred after retirement and no expenses incurred before retirement. So many companies have actually sort of cashed out their retirement health plans and provided employees with an HRA lump sum, which then the employee or the retiree at that point goes out and can buy a supplement policy, can buy a um, uh, Medicare Advantage plan. They can do whatever they want with those uh, HRE dollars that are allocated, but many times it's a lump sum that's provided uh, to the retiree. Thus, after retirement, the individual is no longer an eligible individual for purposes of the HSA. So that goes away. Once you're retired and you're under Medicare, you can't put money into an HSA. In the arrangements described, the individual does not fail to be an eligible individual under the IRS code and may contribute to an HSA. So if you have an HRA that's paid um, and used uh, in retirement years, you can still have an HSA during your working years uh, with those HRAs that are set aside uh, that will accumulate until you are retired. So an employer can can have both of these, put some money into an HSA or just make it available for employee contributions only, and then they can put promises on the table into an HRA that can accumulate and you're allowed to use it after you retire. In addition, combinations of these arrangements, which are consistent with these requirements, would not qualify an individual from being an eligible individual. For example, if an employer offers a combined post-deductible HRA and a limited-purpose FSA, this would not disqualify an otherwise eligible individual from contributing to an HSA. So I know that's all complicated, but um, the reality is that you can have all these accounts if they're properly structured. If the HRA is limited and accumulates to your um, retirement, you can still put money into your HSA. If you have an FSA, but it's a limited-purpose FSA, again, you can still put money into your HSA. So there's a lot of possibilities on what can be done with um, HSAs, HRAs, and FSAs. So let me kind of wrap up here in a couple of minutes. What we've really talked about is healthcare consumerism and the ability of an employee to understand that they have a benefit that accumulates money over time that they can have an impact on how much money is accumulating because if they do the right things and the employer has set up rules for uh, good healthy behaviors or choices that are made, whether it's knowing your numbers and your uh, body metrics are in line, your blood pressure, cholesterol, nicotine use, body mass index, waist size, A1C, whatever the measurements are your employer sets up, if you meet those standards or if you have a specialized program that can be utilized, you can get additional monies into these accounts. In particular, uh, your um, HSA account is a great one to do that. These can also be done with an HRA since that's employer-only money. So there are lots of possibilities. Uh, This is the first of five building blocks. I'm going to talk about the four other building blocks in subsequent weeks. But the personal care accounts, these three accounts that I've been talking about, really need to be the foundation that anybody listening to this program begins to say, hey, wait a second, I've got this opportunity to use tax-free dollars. Everybody and anybody would want to use tax-free dollars. Why would you want to pay taxes, whether it's even 15% or 37% at the highest rate? Why would you do that 
and then you have less money left over to actually go out and pay for deductibles or co-pays, whatever else you have in terms of medical expenses. Why not take the full amount that you earn on your job? You work hard. Figure out what that opportunity is within your plan. Or if you're out there having to buy individual insurance, find an insurance company that offers the best program. Particularly, you'll probably find that employer program, that, that insurance company program with an HSA eligible plan. But find out if that insurance company will, in fact, share some of the savings back to you if you're following your doctor's orders, you're taking your medication, you're doing certain healthy behaviors. And if it's not putting money into an, a personal care account, find out if they'll adjust your deductible. They do that with auto insurance. We've seen those commercials on TV where there's rocks over somebody's head and as they're being better drivers, those rocks are reducing in size. That could happen to your deductible. We're also seeing commercials today out there, but if you're a good driver, your, your phone app will show your savings accumulating as you continue to be a good driver. Well, that's like putting money into your HSA, uh, monies that can be used to lower your, uh, your premiums. So there's lots of different ways that healthcare should be following some of the models out there for auto insurance or other insurance that rewards and incentivize people. I hope this has not been too complicated. I hope I've tried to keep it easy. The main message is look at what you have because you have a valuable asset sitting out there that if you have that available and you're not using it to the ultimate, you're really missing out and your fellow workers may in fact be benefiting from those types of programs and you're missing out. So I hope you join us again next week as we look at more uh, healthcare initiatives that are going on at the national level. And then all this gives you a better insight to healthcare. So as the name says, this is Healthcare Insight. Ron Bachman signing off from America's Web Radio. See you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.